Leadership Next is powered by the folks at Deloitte, who, like me, are super focused on how CEOs can lead in the context of disruption and devolving societal expectations. Welcome to Leadership Next, the podcast about the changing rules of business leadership. I'm Alan Murray, and I'm here with my amazing (laughs) co-host, Ellen McGirt. Ellen, how are you today? I am very excited, and thank you for that wonderful introduction that I live for. I'm very excited because we're welcoming a CEO I've been dying to meet for many, many years. Yeah, and probably one that many of our listeners haven't heard of. I bet you're right, Alan, which is part of what makes today so much fun. Jack Dangermund is the founder and president of Esri. It's a giant private company based in California that gives, well, I'm going to say gives map making a whole new meaning, but we'll let him tell us more. Jack, welcome to Leadership Next. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you very much for the the opportunity to uh, talk with you guys. You're doing so many interesting things. We welcome the opportunity to talk to you, but let's start with the basics. Tell us what Esri is and where it came from and what you're doing. Well, about 51 years ago, I started it right out of school. I had been studying uh, landscape planning and computing and working in a lab at Harvard, the uh, computer graphics lab. Got really very passionate about the idea of applying computers to environmental planning and land use planning. So came back to Rutland's and started it. I started just doing little projects one at a time for customers, making maps, doing environmental assessments, uh, helping people pick the right location for things like uh, power plants or uh, new towns. And it just kept growing for about 10 years. All right, let me just say that that was before the days when people talked about technology platforms, but right. it is a technology <laughs> platform, right? Well, it is now. We didn't think of it that way. I mean, we thought of it as you know software that made maps and did analytics. Uh, but after about 10 years, people said, Jack, could I have some of that software? And uh, so we made a sort of strategic decision to start selling our software rather than just doing project after project. And that was a that was a big change at the time. And very gradually, our users kept hammering on us and we re-engineered what was at that time homemade software into a product and then gradually grew that product up into what it is today. Today, we support about 350,000 organizations with, I guess you might call it a platform, Alan. It's actually desktop software, server software, cloud software, SaaS, PaaS, different forms of uh, ingestion, our customers bring it in and they use it for all sorts of things, actually. Let's talk about what all sorts of things are, because it's an astonishing array of use cases, and some of them are quite moving. Everything from tracking elephants, and I imagine there's a tremendous story to be told with COVID. I know the last time I talked to anybody at, at Esri, we were talking about Ebola, through ir- irrigation techniques to logistics for FedEx, for major retail organizations to figure out where they're going to put their next location. And there's your work that you're doing supporting NGOs and nonprofits and governments, so much of which you give away for free. So maybe you could talk a little bit about the core of what geographic information systems is and geospatial thinking is. You know, these are the tools that everybody seems to need and nobody seems to know that that you provide them. <laughs> yeah. we, are, we are in this funny situation because we're not a public company. People don't really see us in the news very often until they see the footprints of what our users are doing. So Esri is organized to be able to support these different organizations with a tool set, which 
is a tool set that abstracts geography, the science of our world, into layers of information. And these layers deal with everything from land use and facilities, power lines, uh, you know, roads, railroads, to the idea of social information like administrative zones, uh, census bureau kind of boundaries that where people collect statistical data into. So just about everything that you experience, we put into maps. Okay, not emotional things, but I mean, every kind of real things, the substance of we can abstract it, digitize it, so to speak, connect those digital maps to tabular information, and then overlay the maps so that you can look at relationships and patterns that, uh, you know, that run the world. So that's a good way to say it, actually. Our customers run the world <laughs> in the private yeah. sector, in the public sector, in the NGO wow. sector, and they do it through maps, or at least that's how I see the entire world. Yeah. So, so the, uh, Jack, the thing about running the world is some people uh, do it better than others, and yes. some people have, <laughs> have, have, have more pure motives than others. I mean, one of the things we've learned about uh, big, powerful technology platforms, if I can continue to call ESRI a platform, is they can be used for good and they can be used for evil. Uh, this would seem to me not to be any different. How do you police that? How do you try and ensure that it's used mostly for good and minimally for evil? Well, our users do amazing work, and uh, I don't think we know what our users actually do in total, uh, but they do their work better because they use our tools. And at the same time, we look at issues of uh, social nature or an environmental nature and try to build some of the parameters of that kind of thinking into the basic tools. So when our users buy those tools, they wind up doing usually a lot more than their basic mission. I mean, you look at uh, petroleum companies, for example. Uh, they, of course, use our tools to drill at the best place or to manage their facilities or pipelines. And at the same time, they've learned through the use of these tools to bring geographic thinking that considers environmental factors. They overlay their assets on top of data sets that are from different environmental agencies like EPA or USGS or others here in this country, and they think better. Let me just say, uh, Alan, that there's the technology of GIS, but there's also the geographic approach. And the geographic approach is a kind of way of thinking and also analyzing the world and then acting. So our users typically wind up collecting data geographically or relate their data to geographic frames. Then they visualize it through maps. That's how people commonly think of us. And then they analyze the relationships and overlays of these maps to be able to predict things like Starbucks picks the best place to locate their stores or uh, Walmarts or Walgreens or Nike or these organizations. They do things more efficiently. They do things more sustainably by bringing the information set together. So we can't actually control them or tell them what to do but we can introduce to them this geographic way of thinking and acting that mm -hmm. ultimately drives better action and behavior on their part. It sounds like what you're saying, that there's a powerful design plus conservation point of view that's embedded in the products that people use, that you encourage. Would that be fair? It's fair because, and also there's a whole culture around, I mean, there's, we have roughly 10 million users who are working with our tools in various ways. And they share uh, what they're doing. We have these massive user conferences. They all bring maps and they teach each other 
basic approaches and uh, and geographic thinking. <laughs> I know this probably sounds weird to most of your um, no. listeners because you know it's all hidden. Nobody actually knows. But behind the scenes, by the way, ge- geography uh, runs the world. That's the way I would say. Yeah. Well, let's take a specific example. I gather you have some pretty powerful tools to help people go about redistricting. The once a decade mm-hmm. task in the U.S. Right. where they mm-hmm. redraw legislative districts. I mean, to me, that seems to be a good case of one where you have some people out there who want to draw districts that are as representative as they can be of the states and the populations they represent. You have other people who want to draw districts in a way that disenfranchises their enemies and maximizes their political power. I assume your tools can be used for both. Well, our tools basically are built on top of population data. That's the best way to describe it. And we actually don't have the visibility that probably uh, would be thoughtful for me to respond to your question. But I'm I'm sure that, you know, whether you're going to the right or going to the left, we don't actually care. We, we care about yeah. providing rational science-based tools that, you know, enable people to be able to do this kind of work better. Well, well let me just be the devil's advocate here for a minute, yeah. and then you can, you can slap me down for <laughs> being out of line. But, you know, we're living through this uh, sort of hyper attention on Facebook and the problems that Facebook technology has caused. For many years, Facebook said, hey, we're just here as a platform. We don't, you know, you can use this however you want to and how you use it is up to you, not up to us. And we don't want to take responsibility for that. That got them into a heap of trouble. Is it different for Esri? I don't I don't think that uh, people are getting into trouble in the same way as they do with social media. Uh, At least that has been the case so far. Uh, people, when they perceive our tools or when they work with our tools, basically use the tools to do the right thing. That That's maybe idealistic on my side, Alan, and I don't really see a lot of the uh, work that might be, in your perception, evil. But generally speaking, I'm interested in providing tools that are rational, science-based, that allow people to not only do things effectively, but also be transparent about them. Maps yeah. are a great way to do transparent work. You know, the the current president, when he was vice president, worked with us on the Recovery Act. And he basically took the $880 billion of money that they hemorrhaged out, you know, to turn the economy around. And he put them on the map with little dots. So every recovery project was then served out on one of our maps and people were able to interact with that map, point at the little dots and find out, oh, is this dot you know, a project for the mayor's brother-in-law or something like that? No, no. And the result of that transparency uh, was that there was almost no fraud in this uh, expenditure because the information became transparent. And other political leaders like Martin O'Malley up in Maryland, when he was a mayor, had something called CityStat. And he put all of the expenditures and all of the activities in the city onto a map. And it, it just transformed everybody's behavior because they could see each other in a transparent way. And hmm. it just builds on that. You sound like a good journalist, that good information leads to good outcomes. I, I believe that. In fact, it's <laughs> been, look, uh, yeah, it, we are dealing with bad information with bad outcomes these days. <laughs> but I, I think we can be a light of rational thinking uh, with rational information. And the more light we shine on it, the more transparent it becomes, the better people actually behave. 
All right, so as I said at the top of the show, there are hundreds of use cases for Esri software. And as we heard Jack say, they've built a conservation mindset into the product to encourage companies to act in sustainable ways. Now, there's no question we're increasingly seeing companies focus on the planet and their own eco footprints. So we're going to get back to how Jack and Esri are helping us with that in just a bit. But first, I want to take this minute to talk about the results of a new survey that Fortune conducted with Deloitte, a large piece of it focused on companies' plans to address climate change. And here to help me dig into the results is a very, very special person I'm excited to introduce you to, Deloitte's Chief Purpose Officer, Kwesi Mitchell. Kwesi, welcome to Leadership Next. Thank you, Helen. It's a pleasure to be here. So when you get the results of this survey, what's the first thing that jumps out at you? How do you use this information to inform your work? And then I want to talk about the uh, the carbon emissions piece, because that fascinated me. Of course. There were two things that really like hopped out at me when I looked at the, the survey results. Understanding that 90% of the CEOs agree that climate change needs to be addressed urgently. And, and not just put an end to the debate. This is an issue that is top of mind for CEOs and needs to be addressed going forward. The other thing that stood out to me was that 85% of the CEOs thought that executing a climate agenda would positively impact their ability to attract, retain, and engage their workforce, especially currently in the midst of the great resignation. Like That's critical um, for all of us going forward. There's one thing that stuck out to me, too, was the question is, when does your organization plan to reach net zero carbon emissions? I was a little surprised, given the level of urgency of CEOs saying that climate change needs to be addressed, that a whopping nearly 30% of them don't have a plan to get there at all. So you're smiling. That's a good sign. I'm I'm reading the tea leaves correctly. What do we take away from that? The complexity of the issue. Really, I and when people try to wrap their heads around their impact as an organization on climate change and actions and the transformation that they need to drive within an organization, it can be overwhelming at times. And in particular, Alan, you know this well, the, the transformation that's going on more broadly across corporate America with respect to diversity, equity and inclusion. I feel that we're going to have the same type of transformation that needs to occur when we think about um, an organization's impact on the climate. And I'm not surprised by that specific number. I'm happy that it's probably lower than it was a year ago. That's true. And hitting the complexity point is a beautiful way to talk about what we're really all up against here when we're talking about big, big organizations facing big investments and big decisions. It's a really healthy way to interpret that. But when we look at this, the level of complexity that we're facing to solve some of these big pressing issues like inclusion, true inclusion and and sustainability, how do you recommend that we start thinking about the kinds of resilience it's going to take to do this work in the long haul? Because there's not a lot of quick wins in a complex situation. There are no quick wins here, and it has to be a sustained and consistent effort. And I think the other thing that's really important is that organizations need to know their personal impact or their organization's impact, let me say. And for when I think about our organization, professional services firm, that in fact um, does do quite a bit of travel, it's why we engage in things such as uh, alliances around sustainable aviation fuel so that we are pinpointing where we're having an impact mitigating it and making long-term plans for it to stay so. 
and, and again, I no magic bullets here at all, but for any leader who was interested in or concerned about making sure that people that report to them are bringing their full purpose to their work, any tips there? Ask and make sure that your people aren't sitting on the sidelines, right? There are a number of people who are waiting for permission so give them that permission to engage, to be thoughtful, and to live their purpose on a daily basis. That's absolutely perfect, Quasi. Thank you so much, and please come back. Thank you. I'm curious about how the products are evolving and how much time you're spending or money that you're spending or resources that you're spending on research and development, for example, because it seems to me that the environment is changing so much and, and we're dealing with climate effects that are rapidly moving. How do you keep up with the times? How do you think about the future and, and how are you evolving? And, the and, and let me just add data sources are exploding. Mm -hmm. You know, there's yes. more and more yes. unstructured data every day about geographies. Well, these are good questions. I mean, fundamentally, ESRI started as a private company, and it still is. And by doing that, we sort of organically grew over the decades, never borrowed money, and never, you know, you know, took capital, weren't venture-driven. So we've been able to maintain a strong financial position and not be at the effect of outside influences, stockholders or stock price or like that. And I have no trouble with organizations that are that way. <laughs> it's just that we weren't. And as a result of that, we basically operate as a nonprofit where we take money in and we spend it all on R&D. So our typical R&D budget has been for decades about 30 to 35 percent of our revenue uh, hmm. goes back into pushing the methods further. We basically are driven by not only the technology evolution, because we do integrate with lots of other technologies, but also by our users. They tell us hey, I'm feeling some pain here. I have a vision there. And so we listen in user groups to the, this kind of input and then lay out an agenda every year and then engineer our tools uh, so that our architecture and the technology is evolutionary. So we keep incrementally getting better. And with respect to the data, we have some data sets that we curate, but mostly it's our user's data. Our cloud version is up in the sky there. And it allows our users to share their layers of data or other data if, so that other people can use them. And not everybody does that. I mean, you know, people like Shell Oil put their data up there, but they don't share it with everybody else. On the other hand, most government agencies are happy to share their data so that other agencies can use it. And this is, I think there's about 44 and a half million data sets that have been shared. Thousands more go up in that cloud every day. This is like a gold mine or a living we call it a living atlas of our planet. So this ecosystem of building the planet's knowledge, sometimes I refer to it as like a, a nervous system for the planet. So now let's talk about the pandemic and how some of your users have been using your tools to combat COVID. Tell us more. Well, uh, most people will be familiar in your uh, listeners with the Johns Hopkins map. That was stood up by a student actually uh, there in March of, um, what was it, 2020. And he stood it up on top of our cloud platform. And he just had the idea that he would take our standard dashboard and put some of the COVID information that he had access to on the internet behind it. 
and you know a few few days went by a few thousand people a few ten, you know, a few tens of thousands and, <laughs> and again this is running on our cloud platform so we're watching this. all of a sudden it goes to a hundred thousand or wow. a million people in a day okay then that map that dashboard which uh, about a third of the world has seen has been viewed over 2.2 trillion times wow and so it just scaled way out so some wow. of our maps that we publish or work with our customers to publish in that case are massive in their distribution. In that particular case, it really changed the perception of the world population about this disease. It showed, you know, people are watching it in Wuhan, spread out, and everybody's checking it. So that basic feed of web harvested COVID information and then shown in the dashboard was then in turn fed into about 5,000 other dashboards around the planet. So one in New York, one in Montgomery, one in Miami, one in Uganda, one in Germany. So the dashboards that people commonly now know as you know COVID dashboards are all fed off of common sourced information. So that's an example of what happened in, in COVID. But yes. uh, also our users got very active, like picking the optimum sites, for vaccinations, uh, picking yeah. the optimum sites for testing. The same basic tools that Starbucks uses for locating their stores, wow. bringing the information together, connecting origin to destination, are all being deployed in COVID uh, to be able to predict geographically where the spread is happening. It just goes on and on. But now people are beginning to say, you know, given climate change, Jack, and we all right. have heard this phrase, you know, there's no vaccination for climate change. But the amazing experience of watching the world wake up geographically is starting to take hold with other kinds of phenomena, loss of biodiversity yeah. and other things. So that we're working closely with the UN on setting up the SDGs framework. That's a kind of geo-accounting for all the things that are, people really care about, biodiversity, racial equity, uh, and on and on. Do they pay for this, Jack, or do you do this as a charitable part of your business? We're actually doing that as a charitable part. Others are supporting some of the activities of training the different nations. So we've donated our software to, I think there are 70 countries. They in turn are replicating the data in their countries into the international hub. And wow. uh, there's other foundations that are contributing like the Kellogg Foundation to creating a kind of a worldview, kind of replicating what we did with COVID, but for the other SDG indicators. Yeah, I don't want people to miss the point here that this is a very big business you've built. I mean, right. I don't, you're, you're not a public company. You don't have to answer this question, but your market value has to be in the billions of dollars, maybe double digit billions. I don't know. <laughs> you're being quiet, Jack. <laughs> this is why it's so hard to find this information. <laughs> Sorry. Well, our revenues globally are a few billion dollars. Yeah. Uh, and, so, uh, so you put a five US. or 10 multiple on that and you're you're talking about some real money there. Well, our our interest is not monetizing our work, Alan. Um, it's never been for 50 years. So we uh, we think that we can do very powerful and important things out of applying what we call the science of where or the science of geography in various settings. And this gets me excited, actually. I, but it has, also made, it has also made you a, a multi-billionaire. Well, on paper, I, you know, I so always <laughs> argue about this damn Forbes magazine who assesses everything and says, oh, you're worth all this money. I said, that's bullshit, really. I mean, we're just running a little business here. And, uh, 
It's bullshit until you decide to sell it. Well, I don't want to sell it. This is not going to be a sold or monetized business. Uh, our our work is about uh, is much more important than that. And a lot of our work is in partnership with other companies like Autodesk Corporation or Microsoft. While our business may be here in the U.S. about a billion and a half, it drags about a $28 billion ecosystem of other companies. that. Uh, so when we sell a billion, Microsoft gets a billion driven in their cloud and other software. So we're an interesting little uh, ratchet, I guess that's the right word, uh, in the economy. Uh, but our, our main focus is on doing the work and not monetizing, not selling, not going public sort of thing. I want to ask a, a leadership question, and I ask this a lot, um, this type of question a lot. But Esri is so much built on your collective values and the way you think the world should work and the way you think people should think about problem solving using these tools and working collaboratively. It's it's really incredible. How have you thought about making sure that culture described by those values continues in the future? The people, uh, you know, this is an amazing organization. We have several hundred very, very, very smart people. And it's run not by myself or Laura, but by this collection of leaders that are driving in various divisions. So we don't have an outside board. We have an internal board. The people that run the company are actually operating directors. That's the way that business people would describe it. And they're very committed to continuing this on. You know, everybody always asks me, well, what's going to happen when you check out? Yeah. I asked it nicer <laughs> than that. I ain't checking out very I soon. I asked it way nicer <laughs> than that. Yeah, how weird is that? Right. But I've been asked that question now for about 40 years. Uh, so it's always on people's minds because I don't know exactly why it is. Yeah, um, well, life- well no, one, no one asked Rupert Murdoch that, and he's a lot older than you are. Well, it's about the culture. No, it's hierarchy, and that's how corporations are formed. So you, you, it's, it's natural to think about next generation ideas? I, I think Esri is not a one-person company, if that's your question. It's a network of very smart people, and they keep a teaming and collaborating and driving our mission forward. Well, congratulations uh, on what you've built. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us about it. We're, we're going to keep a much closer eye yeah. on it from this day forward, and we're going to call you a billionaire even if you don't have <laughs> Drives me nuts down <laughs> I'm so glad you came. Thank you. It was really great. Thank you for sharing that with us. Thank you very much for this interview, and I I enjoyed meeting both of you. Leadership Next is edited by Nicole Vergala, written by me, Alan Murray, along with my amazing colleagues, Ellen McGirt and Megan Arnold. Our theme is by Jason Snell. Executive producers are Mason Cohn and Megan Arnold. Leadership Next is a production of Fortune Media. Leadership Next episodes are produced by Fortune's editorial team. The views and opinions expressed by podcast speakers and guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Deloitte or its personnel, nor does Deloitte advocate or endorse any individuals or entities featured on the episodes. 